The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, a sickly child who found relief in the great outdoors and then preserved it for future generations as our 26th president. Theodore Roosevelt always loved a good challenge, personal health, running a ranch, and fighting off the reckless use of our nation's most impressive wild lands. It took a lot of political capital to make it happen, and our beautiful national parks exist today because of his overwhelming determination. The boundless energy of Theodore Roosevelt and how he worked to save America's greatest natural treasures for generations to come. That's next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. We are thrilled to have Doug Brinkley join us for this episode. He's written several best-selling books on several different presidents, including Kennedy, FDR, Nixon, Reagan, Ford, Carter, and the man we're talking about today, Teddy Roosevelt. The book is called The Wilderness Warrior, Theodore Roosevelt and the Crusade for America. Doug, with your passion and knowledge of the presidency, we need to have you on as a full-time host. Or at least well, I'm, I'm, willing, <laughs> well I'm, I'm uh, willing to do it once every month. All right. Very good. Hey, we'll take you up on that, Doug Brinkley. We will. <laughs> but I, I, won't, I won't carry the show just for a quick five or ten minutes. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Uh, Doug, it's really good to see you. Thank you so much for doing this. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I know you've written, Scott, uh, outlined the, the list of, of presidential books you've written over the years. What first led you to the topic of the presidency? Uh, I grew up in Ohio, and uh, it's sort of a, a rite of passage there to claim that we're the mother of all presidents. Uh, <laughs> uh, down the road from me, my home in Perrysburg, Ohio, was Rutherford B. Hayes' home. Mm-hmm. And then we would go visit things like, you know, uh, William McKinley's tomb or the birthplace of Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, my town, I lived in Perrysburg, was filled with William Henry Harrison Lore. In fact, he he got news that he won the presidency in my little town. So, well, uh, it really was Ohio presidents. I took kind of a, a, a pride in all of that. And um, and then when I went to do my doctorate in history, I kept my eyes on first Harry Truman and his relationship with Dean Acheson on the Cold War, and things developed from there. Yeah. We just had the director of the Hayes Library and the historian from the Hayes Library on, I guess, last week, right, Scott? Yeah, the episode just dropped on Monday. We uh, we did an episode on Rutherford Hayes. Oh, boy, I wish I would have heard that. I have to um, listen to it. I'm very interested in Hayes. I find he's quite an undersung president mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. same way James K. Polk is of yes. Tennessee. Um, yes. But um, always there are great scholars working on books, and different presidents will have their moment in the sun. That's right. Now, we're talking about Theodore Roosevelt today, and as you know, in Wilderness Warrior, he became interested in nature at a very early age and started collecting 
as you say, all things wild and keeping them in the family house. How, how did his family react to that passion for nature and, and encourage it? And why ultimately, given he was so interested in nature, why didn't he choose a career in that field? Well, Theodore Roosevelt was born in New York City in uh, 1858. And that tells you that the Civil War was coming on pretty fast. So when he was a little boy, that was the big topic of conversation in his house because his mother was from Georgia and she was for the Confederacy. And his father, a Knickerbocker from New York, was for the Union Army. So there were disagreements in the house about the Civil War. But what became a shared experience in the Roosevelt's home was a book published in 1859, um, Charles Darwin on the Origins of Species. Now, if you go to Civil War history, you're not really having many soldiers at Shiloh or Gettysburg reading Darwin. But in the Roosevelt House in New York City, um, his father was starting the American uh, Museum of Natural History. In fact, he was the leading sponsor of that great institution, working with a man named Alan Bickmore. And Theodore Roosevelt's uncle, Robert Barnwell Roosevelt, was at Harvard and was considered one of the great wildlife biologists of that era. His TR's crazy uncle, Rob, wrote a book on Lake Superior. He wrote a book about the waterfowl of Florida. And then here, his father's building the big natural history museum in New York. So young Theodore, the future president, started trying to collect bird nests and and uh, and then started getting involved with taxidermy, where the BB gun um, or you know pellet guns would shoot a bird in Central Park uh, was much wilder than it, it you could imagine really um, back then. And he started his own library, and in fact. He was his father hired John James Audubon's lead taxidermist, somebody who actually worked with the Audubon to help young TR learn how to do taxidermy properly on small birds. Add to that that he had asthma. And whenever he was in New York City, he had a hard time breathing. But quite miraculously, when they'd get to the Catskills or particularly the Adirondacks, um, his his lungs opened up and he felt that it was uh, nature was a health curative. So by the time TR goes to Harvard as an undergraduate, he writes his first book there called the summer birds of the Adirondacks as an undergraduate. And um, he wanted to really be a naturalist, but as his father said, Theodore, you're just looking at these guys that you like tramping around, traveling the world, looking at wildlife if you're going to be a laboratory scientist, you're going to be spending a lot of your time indoors. And um, and so he started, his interest expanded into U.S. naval history and, of course, progressive politics. Well, speaking of nature as a curative, in 1884, uh, T.R.'s mother and wife died on the very same day, and he headed west, created the image we know of him as the, the beginning of the Rough Rider, the bespectacled cowboy how did that pilgrimage to the Badlands alter or enhance his views of nature? Well, when he was in graduating from Harvard, he got to take an incredible trip out west to go grouse hunting in westernmost Iowa, Carroll County. Uh, we often think of Iowa as being sort of the Midwest and all, but you go far west. I mean, he was on those western as you could get in Iowa, and. Uh, 
he went hunting there and then he went up to Fargo, North Dakota and to Moorhead, Minnesota, the Red River up in that part of the country. And while he was doing that trip, he read Francis Parkman's On the Oregon Trail. He fell in love with that book. And then he got a buffalo robe. So at night, he'd wrap himself in a buffalo <laughs> robe. And, and uh, so he was smitten with the West. Uh, so when his uh, mother and, um, and wife died on Valentine's Day, as you say, I mean, he put an X in his diary that said, the light has gone out of my life forever. He fell into a funk, a deep depression. His sister said, Theodore, uh, the baby survived. She died, his uh, wife, Alice, died giving childbirth. And so uh, the baby had lived. And TR's sister said, I'll watch the child. Why don't you go back out to North Dakota in the West and find yourself? Mm -hmm. And so he took the Northern Pacific Railroad from New York City, and it dumped them off. It hadn't been completed, the Northern Pacific connecting Seattle to New York. He got off where the rails ended, which was Medora, North Dakota, uh, in the middle of the Badlands. Mm -hmm. And that's when he started spending his years in the wild. He developed two uh, brands, the uh, Maltese Cross and the Elkhorn brand for his cattle. He had two separate little ranches, try to make business money as a cowboy. But all the while was hunting and writing books about nature. He wrote three books about the Badlands ecosystem and the little Missouri River that goes through the uh, today's Theodore Roosevelt National Park became the sort of spiritual river in his life. Mm -hmm. Well, Scott, I will say, as we think about American POTUS products, a buffalo robe with our logo is not a bad idea. Yeah, let's, let's, let's think about that. Okay. Uh, now I can't get that idea out of my head. Yeah. Well, so, and he, he, uh, he, while he was there in North Dakota, he went and, and shot a buffalo, but it took him a week. And uh, he, he realized that there once were 60 million buffalo thundering mm -hmm. across the Great Plains. And now we were down to uh, just a, a few thousand. So he started and formed the American Bison Society, and then he started breeding uh, bison and buffalo in the Bronx Zoo. Um, and it's harder to get a genetically perfect herd than you'd think. Their stomachs are sensitive to grasses, but eventually the Bronx Zoo people figured it out, and TR had a perfect herd. And as president, he brought them to um, Wichita Mountain, Oklahoma. And with Kwana Parker, the chief of the Comanche, who now had turned to Christianity and opium, um, had um, had a was with TR, and they released these buffalo into Oklahoma. And today, when most of, if anybody travels uh, through the Great Plains, most of those are buffalo that came from TR's uh, herd uh, in New York. So, Doug, you mentioned a few times T.R. began writing early and a very prolific writer. How did you use those writings in your research and what uh, among them stood out most to you? Well, it's always helpful for a biographer, of a, a, to, I mean, to have somebody who wrote a lot. Um, I mean, and Theodore Roosevelt wrote about 35 books and 150,000 letters. And he was he was uh, spoke, you know, four languages fluently. Um, and carried with him his pigskin library that had the classics. He had read about everything. He could read, he read books nonstop. 
And hence, he became a very great writer. Uh, I believe, in my mind, he was the best writing president. I will get blowback from people that talk about Lincoln because of, you know, the Gettysburg Address and the inaugurals or Jefferson. Uh, but T.R. could write a beautiful prose at quite ease. It actually was a journalist for magazines like Scribner's and the like. Um, I find his best, um, well, probably, you know, it goes against my theme here of the wilderness, but I think his two-volume history of the War of 1812 naval battles are magnificent. Um, His dealing with you know, the Oliver Hazard Perry and Lake Erie and Lake Champlain and uh, how how close it was to Britain winning that war and how great our naval traditions were. It's magnificent. Um, I, I love his last, one of his last writings, The Brazilian Wilderness, when he wrote about his journey down the river of no return, going into the heart of the Amazon and what it was like in Brazil. Uh, that's another one of his books that I like. But he, I, I enjoy all of his shorter nature writings. Like right before he died, he wrote an article about the gopher tortoises of Florida. And then, and then he wrote an article about, about taking part in a Native American rattlesnake handling ceremony in the, <laughs> in the Southwest. And they're very vivid. And uh, he actually died in 1919 while he was writing a, um, an essay about pheasants. Uh, and and uh, so his whole life had a, a real, uh, you know, when he was writing about animals. Uh, there's a great uh, Edwin O. Wilson who's still with us uh, uh, up at Harvard, and he talks about people being biophilic, meaning some people need to have natural world plants, animal life around them to feel complete. And Theodore Roosevelt was of that ilk. He at any given time had 50 to 150 pets and they ranged ranged from, you know, the dogs, um, parrots, cats, monkeys to exotic snakes. He once had a hyena, a pet badger. One could go on and on. He was deeply interested in flora and fauna and just the animal kingdom. And his uh, uncle Robert Roosevelt, who I mentioned, was like a Dr. Doolittle-like figure. And I think T.R. got some of that out of him. But he's just uh, one of those people that loves was uh, being around wildlife. If you'd like to know more about Doug Brinkley and his terrific book on Theodore Roosevelt, click on over to the Guest Resources section of AmericanPOTUS.com. And while you're there, let us know about any other authors or books that you think would make for an interesting episode. Thanks for listening to American POTUS. So how, you've mentioned his, his love of Darwin and certainly his deep knowledge. How, how, would, how did he stack up to those in academia or those who were kind of fully focused on issues of natural science? I, th- I think he was one of the top five ornithologists in the United States in his era, period. I don't, I'm not giving him a curve for being famous. Just he was that he was a top ornithologist. There are only a few that may have been better. And he was considered number one in the country um, for being able to identify birds by their song. Uh, he had lost an eye in a boxing incident, so he couldn't see out of one eye. 
and his other eye was quite blurry. He did not have great vision. Hence, he really wasn't a great hunter. He was a terrible shot. He had the spirit of pursuit in him, which, uh, you know, which, uh, 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 you know, and willpower, you know, which kind of made him a, an okay hunter. Um, but yeah, he's, uh, he, he liked hearing birdsong and could identify, you know, a golden cheek warbler from, uh, you know, a, a different type of warbler type of thing, which is quite remarkable. And, uh, and, uh, you know, his heroes were ornithologists and zoologists, mammalogists. Given his druthers, he, when he could do a White House dinner, he'd like sitting with that group at his table. Those were people because he would find the new about the newest research going on and a new a new species discovered in New Zealand or a new type of frog found in Florida and, and these sorts of things fascinated him. Well, now this man obviously had a great love of nature. There's this dichotomy, though. I know many have spoken of this of, of a man who who loved nature, but counterbalanced by a man who who did love to hunt. Who, as you say, ate enough meat for a football squad. I think is how you put it. <laughs> <laughs> How would he and how do you kind of square those two realities of TR's life? Well, back in the 19th century, uh, you didn't have DNA, you didn't have bird banning, you didn't have ways to understand species, so you would shoot them to study them. Uh, Audubon shot all of his birds to draw them. Um, that's just the way it went back there, and you would have drawers. So if you wanted to study a, a, a eastern bluebird, you would want to collect 40 or 50 of them at a museum. So you could study the variations in beak size, coloration, because what we were trying to do was create a biological survey of Mm -hmm. North America. How many types of bluebirds are there? How many types of wrens? What types of grasshoppers? What types of grass? And that was all new in the late 19th century. So today we have guidebooks for everywhere. You grab a guidebook and read up about it. Uh, Back then, we had no guidebooks, particularly on the West. I mean, nobody knew what was in Arizona, how many types of hummingbirds. Um, And so he got engaged in those discussions. Uh, In fact, you know, uh, an elk, the Roosevelt elk was named after him, the largest elk that was discovered up in the Olympic Forest in Washington, and so we really didn't even know what's what uh, was around us. So just think of Theodore Roosevelt as interested in cataloging mm-hmm. um, all of the species. Now, with that said, he loved to have the animals around him in taxidermy settings. So you go to his home in Sagamore Hill, Long Island. He loves you know um, to have that species there, mm-hmm. uh, and. And uh, and it, it strikes some people in the modern world as being uh, horrific, but that was the way back then when there were no motion pictures of mm-hmm. of animals from Africa and the like to be able to um, to uh, have one mounted that you collected yourself. Um, he also was a lifetime member of the National Rifle Association and the Audubon Society. Mm-hmm. So today, they one seems to be on the left and one on the right, and TR like both because he was very opposed to uh, he was very strict on animal slaughter laws and that he he fought for the banning of killing of songbirds and in fact he created today's US Fish and Wildlife Service our country has 550 na- national wildlife refuges Theodore Roosevelt created the first in Florida 
Um, and because people with birds, let's say egrets, heron, going to nest in Florida, a feather mafia would come and slaughter them all. They take guns, shoot them all, and pluck the ornamental feathers. Because in those days, beautiful feathers were part of a fashion trend. No woman would go out in public without a bonnet with a a feather on it. And so he weighed in down there and declared Pelican Island, Florida, along the Indian River, a national wildlife refuge uh, for birds where humans weren't allowed to go without a permit. And then he quickly did 51 of those uh, around the country. Um, So he was a vigorous uh, proponent of saving species and overall from 1901 to 1905 and uh, 1901 to 1909 he saved 243 million acres of wild his long-term legacy. Well, here's something kind of interesting. Theodore Roosevelt was not very good on water. He would get seas- he got seasick very easily. He wrote about the Navy and the like. Uh, he was most happy in the uh, the Great Plains setting. His great love really was North Dakota, South Dakota, Oklahoma. But then he visited the Grand Canyon and fell in love with it. And he famously held what was really a press conference on the rim of the Grand Canyon, surrounded by the Rough Riders, the uh, men who served with him in 1898 uh, Spanish-American War. And he gave this amazing speech at the lip of the canyon saying, do not touch it. God has made it. You will only mar it. Leave the Grand Canyon alone. And then he fought to save that entire Grand Canyon uh, ecosystem. Uh, Senate uh, and um, others wanted to mine it for zinc, asbestos, and copper, and Theodore Roosevelt used executive power to save the Grand Canyon. He loved it, and as ex-president, he went and lived in the canyon for a while, hiked the trails. Um, it was, to him, the, the greatest spot in the world. He also loved the giant redwood trees in California. Uh, he famously saved Muir Woods uh, uh, um, out of in Marin County, north of San Francisco. But in general, he was campaigning for uh, the Redwoods groves uh, to be saved in Northern California as heirlooms for future generations. Those two things alone will be a tremendous legacy and so many more things he did. A quick break to remind you about the guest resources section of AmericanPOTUS.com. You'll find more information on our guest, Doug Brinkley, and all of his terrific presidential history bestsellers. And while you're online, be sure to like or follow us on Facebook and Twitter, so you'll be up to date on future episodes and announcements. I know part of his work as president was pushing through the Antiquities Act of 1906. You talk about that in your book quite a bit. What did that act do and how did Roosevelt use it? The Antiquities Act of 1906 was the brainstorm of a man named John Lacey, a progressive congressman from Iowa who uh, was a Civil War hero for the Union Army from Iowa. 
and uh, got had a big interest in dinosaur bones and also of uh, Native American antiquities, uh, kivas, pottery, uh, blankets, uh, spear tips, anything that you would think of as a Native American artifact. And what Lacey claimed, and he was, of course, correct, is that Europeans museums were coming to the American Southwest and stealing all of these artifacts. They were, they would grab anything they could and and then suddenly they'd be in a museum in Stockholm or Copenhagen or something. Um, And so he created a very elastic little paragraph called the Antiquities Act of 06, which basically said that a president for science, and that's the big word in the, in this name of science can declare a parcel of land uh, owned by the federal government a national monument. for uh, And I, Lacey had in his mind more like if somebody found a T-Rex in Montana, you could like corn it off with like the plastic of a murder site or something, that yellow plastic around, may, may, maybe an acre, maybe five acres, maybe 16 acres, maybe in a real special case, 60 acres of land. Uh, well, Theodore Roosevelt took that elastic legislation and applied it to the Grand Canyon. Uh, it's a, it's a, over a million acres, the Grand Canyon. And that got, and so he got sued over that and had to go fight in the courts. And the courts ruled that Theodore Roosevelt did indeed, under the Antiquities uh, Act, have the right to have saved the Grand Canyon. And once that happened, that then the, these national monuments have been signed by Almost all presidents, um, Donald Trump being an exception, that wasn't his thing. Uh, but most presidents have tried to have a legacy of saving national monuments because it's something you can do with uh, executive decree. So let's just say Barack Obama, um, you know, he saved uh, Bears Ear in uh, Utah, which is very controversial right now. He saved uh, 1.7 million acres in Nevada. He saved San Juan Islands of Washington as a national monument. Um, he would then do smaller ones for history, Obama, like uh, Stonewall LGBTQ uh, site, first gay history site in the National Park Service. Things for uh, Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad, Obama did. But the point is all presidents have that inherent power uh, because Theodore Roosevelt flexed his muscles in such a grandiose way. Problem problem is, you all know, doing POTUS, executive power is great if you like the cause, right? I mean, if it's something, if you know, I mean, I, I really, I think every listener here is saying good for Theodore Roosevelt for saving the Grand Canyon. But then you may not like that another president does it for a, a, a topograph, an area of geography, maybe not quite as dramatic as the Grand Canyon, where there's where there's a lot of oil and gas being locked up. And, and you addressed that in the book. How, how did TR uh, address those complaints and balance conservation with economic development? He really was a conservationist first and foremost. He is our president that said we, that the number one duty of a president is managing of, of natural resources. William Howard Taft used to say he, he's basically drunk on conservation. <laughs> I mean, I mean, T.R. and John Muir and Gifford Pinchot, the chief forester, these guys were really into because a lot of the West was owned by the federal government. 
and and TR wanted a vigorous federal government. So in states like today, like Nevada or Idaho, you know, you'll find two thirds, three quarters of the states owned by the federal government. And uh, and Roosevelt on those lands had uh, you had a governor of a territory to feud with, but there were no U.S. senators. Like when he created the Grand Canyon in Arizona, there were no Arizona senators because Arizona hadn't become a state yet. Hence, he had really strong executive power. And so in the west or west of the Mississippi, and he went to town, if you pull out a map and see all these national forests, which are run by our U.S. Department of Agriculture, they're really all, you're, you're dealing with three quarters of the things you're looking at Theodore Roosevelt saved. Another Roosevelt, though, also had an important conservation legacy. You've written of FDR's work in the book, Rightful Heritage. And would love to have you back on sometime to kind of dig into that, but maybe just wet our appetite. What were the basics? How did FDR compare to TR in terms of his legacy and conservation? Well, the biggest thing historians and the public needs to understand is if you want to understand FDR, you've got to study TR. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Franklin modeled his life after his fifth cousin, who we call Uncle Theodore. Um, Theodore Roosevelt, um, you know, went to Harvard and FDR went to Harvard. Theodore Roosevelt um, loved a big Navy. FDR loved a big Navy. Theodore Roosevelt ran for legislature in New York. FDR ran for legislature in New York. Theodore Roosevelt became governor of New York. FDR became governor of New York. Mm -hmm. Theodore Roosevelt was assistant secretary of the Navy. FDR was assistant secretary of the Navy. (laughs) You know, Theodore Roosevelt had a a niece named Eleanor Roosevelt, and FDR married her. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so big trees, conservation uh, was part of FDR's life also. Now, his great love was the Hudson River. And he was born on the Hudson, lived his whole life on the Hudson, and is buried along the Hudson. And we forget with FDR, Dutchess County, New York is not New York City. That's upstate New York. And so Roosevelt was representing people that were fisher folk, um, people planting flowers and uh, orchards, dirt farmers. And so as governor, FDR created the Civilian Conservation Corps. Uh, and he continued that, you know, really as president, this I, the idea of putting unemployed people to work, planting mm-hmm. trees. Um, and he went on FDR to establish many national parks and monuments, mm-hmm. just like Theodore. Doug, you've written so many great books. What is next for you? And where can our listeners find more about your work? Well, as you on uh, this broadcast, you've got me doing TR in conservation. FDR and the third wave. There was one other third wave of conservation, and that's what I'm writing right now, which was Silent Spring Revolution of the Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon years. Um, and that is period is when we have the word environmental replaces conservation. And it has all these flashpoints, mainly Rachel Carson's 1962 book, Silent Spring. But also William O. Douglas, whose hero was Theodore Roosevelt, from the Supreme Court, he would hike all over trying to save wild places. Uh, But you have in the 60s, things like the Environmental Defense Fund in 1967 is the birth of environmental law as a profession. And so by 1970, uh, Nixon creates the Environmental Protection Agency, Nixon. 
He Nixon created endangered species. Uh, Nixon did the most proactive Clean Air Act ever in 1970. Um, so it was Nixon and his team, William Ruckel's house, Russell Train, and yes, John Ehrlichman, who's most known for Watergate. But Ehrlichman in real life was a land lawyer from Seattle who fought to save islands outside of Seattle and on these big uh, legal cases. And so it was, a, you know, Lady Bird Johnson and beautification and, and Lyndon Johnson coming from the ranch in Texas along the Pedernales River and all. But there was a moment from 1945 to 1974 when this environmental uh, wave hit America because people were fear of radiation from nuclear fallout in Nevada and Utah and the like. People were afraid of the bomb. Uh, and then all these chemicals were going into our foods and pesticides, and there was not really a regulatory authority. And so hence, we had this third wave of conservation. After 74, things have changed, and we've never had that wave, although, of course, the Democratic Party today wants to do that with climate change. Well, listen, Doug, I have a few short questions that will hopefully give us a deeper look into the personal side of POTUS 26. Here we go. Past or present, who do you think his favorite president would be? Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln used executive power to emancipate the slaves, and Theodore Roosevelt used that executive muscle of Lincoln as a justification for his executive power. Uh, He loved Lincoln and um, dearly. What would you say was his luckiest moment? Uh, His luckiest moment would be in 1912 when he was running as a bull mooser and was giving a speech in Milwaukee. And an assassin came up, would be assassin, and shot him in the chest. And the bullet went through his speech paper and also hit his bird watching glasses. And it, it went through the them and uh, he bled profusely and yet went and stood and delivered a speech for over an hour while he was believing, basically saying it'll take more than a bullet to kill a bull moose. And at that moment, it's amazing he didn't die. It's amazing he didn't faint on the stage. And then eventually they rushed him to a hospital in Chicago And it didn't matter then if he won the election or lost, he became like a folk hero, like Paul Bunyan or Kit Carson or something after surviving that assassination attempt. We saw Ronald Reagan do something similar after Reagan was shot in 81. He got a lot of sympathy from people that said, we we see Reagan as our president, not just an arch conservative. So Teddy was before Secret Service codename. So if they were around then, what would his Secret Service code name have been? He hated the name Teddy. Uh, he liked to be, <laughs> he did, he liked to be called Theodore. And the public called him Teddy. And people today, if you ever hear a pundit on television talk say, well, Teddy Roosevelt would have, that's somebody who has not read deeply into Theodore Roosevelt. Okay, noted. I am not uh, Teddy anymore. Uh, 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 I, I, think, I can't seem to stop doing it. I know nah, it's upsetting him. <laughs> it's not none of us can i do it all the time um but the i think he would have liked to have been called bully i mean he's oh, known he's known perfect. for the bully pulpit yeah. and and he used to just say to people bully all the time in his mind that meant good 
strong, good for you. So it, it wasn't about bullying people. It was about just saying, bully, like right on, go for it. You know, good idea, bully. And I, he would have loved that. That was a word he enjoyed using and being identified with. We should bring it back in that positive context. It'd be, it'd be interesting if we could. <laughs> uh, but I, uh, uh, it's, it, it, I enjoyed I enjoy it reading him when he says it in a... Uh, and, uh, you know, like he'd hold his fist up and say, bully for, <laughs> you know, the people of Colorado for standing up against, uh, you know, the right. spe- special interest or whatever. All right. At one point or another, he held the title Explorer, Hunter, Author, Soldier, President. Which of these do you think was the most important to him? Uh, soldier. Without question. He had fact that he loved the U.S. Armed Forces, the military, and the fact that he was able to become a war hero in, in, in Cuba and, uh, and won posthumously the Medal of Honor. Uh, his crowded hour, as he called it, July 1st, 1st uh, 1898, uh, so much so that he asked people, even when he was president, people would call him Colonel Roosevelt, not President Roosevelt. On that list, President would have been below Explorer, also uh, too. He loved being thought of as an explorer. Finally, Doug, what's your favorite quote of his from his presidency years? Do you have one that stands out? I don't know about favorite. There are just so many, but um, you know, I, I, you know, he used to be able. He used to see all of his opponents or every human being. He's thought of as an animal. So every listener here, if you were in conversation with you, TR would imagine what type of species you were so he, <laughs> so he could learn how you might act. So he would come up with things like weasel words uh, for somebody, you know, or, or you know, or, you know, and, and come up with um, ways to identify people with a particular species. But I also, I'm a, he drank a gallon of coffee a day, and, um, and he was caffeinated all the time. So he did not smoke and he did not drink liquor or alcohol. He wasn't a tempers person. He would take a ceremonial sip of wine, but he was not a drinker or smoker. But his coffee intake was quite heavy. So the fact that when he was in Memphis and drank Maxwell House coffee and said, good to the last drop, he was in a restaurant and they served it and they were able to take him saying that and turn it into a uh, company motto that still goes on with Maxwell House. I've always found amusing. That's not your favorite quote of his, though. Let's be clear. No, that's not my, my favorite. <laughs> I always liked the idea of Theodore Roosevelt's thing uh, idea of going onward. Mm-hmm. Just uh, and every time I'm in a uh, bind these days, we just or even with my kid, we got to go onward. You just can't. You know, we all have problems we're dealing with, and you just got to keep pushing onward. And that's the indomitable spirit of Theodore Roosevelt. And incidentally, guys, they're building a museum for Theodore Roosevelt up in Medora, North Dakota, as we speak, a presidential library. Yeah, very excited about it. Can't wait for that to be done and visited. Doug, it's been a real delight seeing you again and and having you on American POTUS. We really appreciate it. And uh, please come join us again soon. Well, good. Pick... Let's sometime, the next time you invite me back, pick a random president. Okay. Anyone. And, and uh, I will see how I do on it. <laughs>
You're on. We'll do it. <laughs> every, 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 everybody, I'll do anybody but Franklin Pierce. Oh well, then I've already I already had a Pierce question. <laughs> <laughs> Here, we, we'll do that. That that'll be a lot of fun. All right. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to the American POTUS podcast. Graphic design by the Thought Bureau and original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, send us a note at AmericanPOTUS.com or stop by our social pages on Facebook or Twitter. Finally, it's our presidential last word from Theodore Roosevelt, quote, There can be nothing in the world more beautiful than the Yosemite, the groves of the giant sequoias and redwoods, the canyon of the Colorado, the canyon of the Yellowstone, the three Tetons, and our people should see to it that they are preserved for their children and their children's children forever with their majestic beauty all unmarred.